So Mark 13, it should be page 719 if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Page 719, Mark 13. When Anne, my wife, and I think about seeing a movie, one of the things she wants to know is, does it have a happy ending? Now, she realizes there's some artsy people out there who might look down on her for liking happy endings, but she insists that real life has enough uh, sadness and tough times, and she doesn't want to spend her free time thinking about someone else's tragedy. And whether you agree or not, it is true that endings matter, right? The way a story ends is the most important part. It's what the whole story leads up to. And once you know the when ending, it shapes how you view the whole story. Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Well, it's the ending that decides. And if this is true in literature, and if it's true in movies, how much more true is it in real life? Where is this whole human experience on planet Earth headed? Will history have a happy ending or a tragic one? Well, in the Western world, we have at least two competing views. There are those who are convinced that things are getting better and better all the time. That society as a whole is on a grand evolutionary journey of progress. And, and that by education and scientific discovery and compassion and tolerance, we're climbing out of the darkness and the suffering of the past and we're moving toward a better world. Meanwhile, there are others who think that that's all a pipe dream and that we're far more likely to blow ourselves up along the way or to so damage our environment that our future becomes catastrophic. So which will it be, paradise or cataclysm? How the story ends matters. Well, for those of us who follow Jesus, we look this morning at Jesus' explanation of how the story ends. Today's passage is a formidable one to try to understand. The abomination of desolation, days of distress unequaled from the beginning, stars falling from the sky. What does all this mean? Last time I preached on this chapter, I took three weeks to cover the whole thing. And this morning I'm going to do it in one shot, so please forgive me if I go just a few minutes longer than usual this morning. To make sense of this chapter, we're going to have to get our minds back into the mindset of Jesus' day. And to get us started, let me tell you for a minute about Alexander the Great, one of the great figures of history who shaped the world that Jesus was born into. Back in 330 BC, Alexander was busy about the business of conquering the world when he was just in his early 30s or late 20s. And, and along the way, he came to the great city of Tyre, not far from Jerusalem, and Alexander did what kings generally did when they came to a city they intended to add to their empire. He offered the city a chance to recognize their new king. And this would have involved the leading men of Tyre coming out and welcoming Alexander as their new emperor and, and bringing Alexander into their temple where he could offer sacrifices to their gods. That might seem strange to us, but we have to remember that the ancient world was highly religious and in that day to offer sacrifices in the temple of a city was equivalent to receiving the key to the city. Well, Alexander came to Tyre and he made this request to sacrifice in their temple and the city of Tyre proudly refused. So, rebuffed at his first coming, the history books tell us, Alexander had a second coming 
to the city of Tyre. He gathered his army. He took the city by force because that's how it worked back then. Well, with that background in mind, think of the story of Jesus. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at Mark 9 to 10. As Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples, we've seen that the disciples knew that Jesus was the city's rightful king, but Jesus warned them that that he would be rejected by the leading men of the city. And that plays itself out in Mark 10 and 11. Jesus comes triumphantly into the city riding on a donkey. His followers and some children and some of the common people welcome him. But the leading men of the city, the scribes and the teachers of the law, are notably critical of this triumphant entry. And then what does Jesus do? He goes straight to the temple. But he doesn't offer sacrifices there. No, he finds the temple, which the religious leaders have been overseeing. It's their domain. He finds it in such a bad spiritual state that he cleanses it and he condemns it. And then he spends several days teaching God's way in that temple. And how do the leaders respond? Well, instead of welcoming Jesus as their king, they they reject Jesus' authority to do these things. And this conflict heats up to the point where now in chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples, do you see all these great buildings? Talking about the temple. Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus has been rejected at his first coming to the city. So now he predicts he will have a second coming. Do you see the pattern? Do you see uh, what we have in chapter 13? We have Jesus' description of what will happen when he comes back a second time to the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you've done much study of prophecy, then you know that there's a lot of debate about this chunk of Scripture. You see, everyone recognizes that Jesus begins this chapter by predicting what's going to happen to Jerusalem, which history books tell us was fulfilled around 70 AD when the Roman armies under the command of General Titus besieged and destroyed the city and demolished the temple. But as you read through chapter 13, Jesus goes on to talk about stuff that seems far bigger and far more earth-shaking than what happened in 70 AD. There's stuff in in this chapter which sounds like Jesus' final coming at the end of the world. And so interpreters debate where where Jesus' predictions about um, Jerusalem back then end and where his predictions about his coming at the end of the world begin. Are you with me? Do you see what the question is in this chapter? Well, one of the reasons that it's so hard to tell is is that prophecies often have multiple fulfillments. Interpreters sometimes compare this to a mountain range. Imagine the first Western explorers um, traveling across eastern Colorado on their way west. and, And then as they travel in the distance, they see a ridge of mountains off in the west, the, the Rocky Mountains as it turns out. And from a distance, it looks just like a single line of mountains on the horizon. But as they get closer to the mountains, and then as they get up into the mountains, they they reach the top of the first ridge, and what do they see? A lot more taller ridges, right? (laughs) That's the way future prophecy is very often. As the prophet looks into the distant future, what they foretell might look to us like one simple event, but 
as you get into that history, it often is more complicated than that. Often there's more than one fulfillment for a given prophecy, for example. Just as one example, think of Nathan's prophecy to King David that, that David would have a son who would build God's house. And uh, we know that that prophecy was fulfilled by David's son Solomon, who built um, uh, God's temple in Jerusalem, right? But if you read the New Testament, you also realize that it says that that prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, David's greater son, who is building us into a temple, a spiritual house for God. So multiple fulfillments we see in that prophecy and in many others. Well, in Mark 13, I'm going to try to show as we look at that, that everything that Jesus predicts there has to some extent already been fulfilled by 70 AD. That the whole chapter to verse 31 at least is primarily all a direct answer to the two questions that the disciples ask in verse 4. Tell us when will the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign that these things are about to be fulfilled? That Jesus answers these two questions and then he concludes in verse 30, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. However, that's not to say that there aren't other larger mountain ridges beyond the first one. That the pattern we see in Jesus' coming to Jerusalem isn't going to be repeated a second or a third time on a greater scale. So, for example, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see John predicting there, among other things, that something like what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD was likewise going to happen to Rome because they rejected Jesus when he came to them through his followers at his first coming. And we may also expect this pattern to be played out in America if we reject God as our king. And likewise, one day, the New Testament predicts that it will be fulfilled for the whole world. So this all has application for us as we look still to the future 2,000 years later. But before we try to apply it willy-nilly to the current events as we pick up the newspaper today, let's try to understand the original pattern back in its own first century context, all right? Okay, are you with me of what we're trying to do? Okay, whether you agree or not. <laughs> okay, so in verses 2 to 3, Jesus, who has just been rejected by the temple's leaders, predicts the temple's destruction. And in verse 4, the disciples ask Jesus two questions. When and what will be the sign that this is going to happen or that this is about to happen? And in response, Jesus warns his disciples to be careful. Four times he warns them. Verse 5, watch out. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, be on your guard. And verse 33, be on your guard. Do you get the feeling that Jesus wants his disciples to watch out for something? <laughs> In verse 5 and 23, he warns them not to be deceived by false messiahs. In verse 9, he warns them not to give up when the going gets tough. And in verse 33, he warns them not to slack off spiritually, but to always be ready. Why all these warnings? Well, let's remember that 
the disciples still don't see clearly what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. We've been looking at that over the past few weeks. They don't realize that he's going to suffer and die. They can't quite get that into their heads. And so they also don't fully have in their brains that following this kind of Messiah means that they too need to be ready to suffer and die. So Jesus reminds them of this, in, in, that this is their calling in verses 9 to 13. He's in effect saying, if you read those verses, don't think that you're going to follow me gallantly into battle on white horses and, and we're going to conquer the opposition and set up God's victorious kingdom. No, it's not going to happen like this. Rather, you'll be flogged. You'll be arrested and brought to trial and, and everyone will hate you. That's what's in store for you. So be on your guard. Don't be deceived by other notions of how God's salvation will come. You see, Jesus knows that the Jews are about to enter a period of fervent nationalism where in the popular view, the Romans are the bad guys and the Jews were on God's side. And we know from history that in the years between 30 and 70 AD, a number of false messiahs rose up and they rallied the Jews to, to fight for God against the Romans. And Jesus is warning his followers, watch out. Don't get, get sucked into using worldly power the way these false messiahs will be, will be promoting it. That's not how God's salvation is going to come. Stick with my way. Stick with being humble servants. Stick with weakness. Stick with preaching about and standing up for a crucified Messiah as foolish as that will be to the people you're preaching to. Suffer for me. Even die for me. That's how we'll win. Jesus is drumming that in to his disciples. Jesus goes on. During that time, there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. Historians tell us that all these things were happening between 30 and 70 AD, as they have been happening since. These were tumultuous times. They, they were the kind of times that made you feel like the world was ripping apart at the seams, that, that it was all coming to an end. But Jesus says, don't let these things alarm you. These are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. Don't get distressed. Don't be deceived. Don't give up or run away. Stay on task. Hang in there. Be faithful where you are. It's not time to run yet. But then in verse 13, or 14, he gives the sign so they will know when it is time to run. When it's time to pack up life and get out of Dodge before it's too late. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, then get out of the city and fast before my judgment falls. Now, what's this word, the abomination that causes desolation? What's that about? Well, if you know your Old Testament like Jesus' followers did, then it's actually no big mystery. Daniel, the book of Daniel, uses that phrase three times in Daniel 9 to 12. And he uses it to describe an event where a powerful and an evil ruler would commit an act of sacrilegious abomination in the temple. And as a result, the temple would become desolate. The, the religious sacrifices which were central to the Jews' relationships with God would cease. And everyone in Jesus' day knew that these prophecies had been fulfilled in 167 B.C. 
when the wicked pagan king uh, from Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, had conquered Jerusalem and had set up an altar to Zeus on top of the Lord's altar and had sacrificed a pig on it. Talk about not being kosher. An abomination. And Antiochus went on to abolish the sacrificial system and to force Jews to do many things abhorrent to their religion and to their God. And many Jews were persecuted. They were persecuted in, in cruel and heinous ways for their faith. And it was a time of immense suffering. And now Jesus predicts it's going to happen again. And everyone immediately knows who's going to do it. A Roman, right? Obviously. In fact, by the time Mark wrote his gospel, Rome had already tried to do something like this. Around 40 AD, the Roman emperor Caligula had tried to put a godlike statue of himself in the temple. And the Jews were ready to revolt. Everything was on a razor edge and, and war was nearly avoided when the Romans backed down. But the Jews were very skittish of the Romans trying something like this again. But notice Mark's little editorial note stuck in there in verse 14. Let the reader understand. What's that about? What does Mark want us to understand? What did he want his disciples to understand? Well, I think Mark wants us to understand what Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples. And that is, the enemy isn't who you think it is. And salvation doesn't come like you think it does. I think Mark is trying to give us a nudge here that, that this whole thing isn't going to go down how we might expect. After all, who refused to welcome Jesus as their king? It wasn't primarily the Romans. It was, first of all, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And, and it's their temple that Jesus has just predicted the destruction of. And so maybe Jesus' followers shouldn't be looking for a Roman abomination. Maybe they should be looking for a Jewish one. Well, if that's true, that makes good sense in light of what historians tell us happened in the winter of 67 to 68 AD. The historian Josephus records that as things were heating up between the Jews and the Romans at that time, some Jewish revolutionaries who were working feverishly to, to liberate Israel from the Romans took over the temple itself as their military headquarters. And they executed the high priest and they appointed their own mock high priest, this bumbling buffoon, Josephus describes him as, who made a mockery of temple worship. And popular outrage among the Jews led then to fighting within the temple itself. And the blood of, of wounded and slain revolutionaries actually spilled on the temple and defiled the temple. And this all happened just months before Roman general Vespasian attacked Judea in the spring of 68 to put down this brewing revolution. And from that time on, it was all downhill until General Titus finally conquered Jerusalem two days later, or two years later. And this fits well with Jesus' prediction. Stay on task, be faithful, be witnesses for me until you see the sign. When you see the abomination which causes desolation, let the reader understand that's your signal to get out and get out fast while you still have a chance. And history tells us that's exactly what believers in Jerusalem did. And so they were spared the horrors which followed. Jesus describes these horrors then in verse 17. 
How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers who have to flee with little ones in tow. Pray that this will not take place in winter when in Palestine it's almost impossible to, to flee and to survive in the wilds due to the cold and the rain and the mud and the swollen rivers which block your progress. Jesus continues, those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Josephus tells us of the horrendous days of 68 to 70 AD while Roman legions were building siege works outside of Jerusalem. Rival Jewish factions were massacring one another inside the city. And when Rome couldn't manage to breach Jerusalem's walls, they settled into a, street, a siege strategy contenting to starve the city to death. This all happened at Passover time when not only was there the city's population, but, but there were half a million pilgrims trapped inside the city, pinned down by the Romans, living in tents, and it's reported that over 100,000 died the slow, cruel death of starvation at that time. And those who in desperation sneaked out of the city in desperate search for food were captured by the Romans and crucified outside the city at a rate of 500 a day, strung up for the people inside to see. Later, the Romans ran out of wood for crosses, and, and so they had to take prisoner those who escaped and surrendered, and they, they gave them bread to eat, and many famished survivors stuffed themselves with so much bread that they literally killed themselves. Finally, the Romans conquered the city. They burned the temple. In the city, many Jews were slaughtered. Others were burned alive. The survivors were taken to Rome. Some faced wild beasts and gladiators in the arena. Others worked as slaves in brutal work camps. Finally, Rome tore down the Jerusalem temple stone by stone until not one stone was left on another. There was a high price to pay for the city which rejected God's own son, the Savior, that he had sent to them. And Jesus is foretelling these things. Then he continued, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Evidently, it could have been even worse. But in desperate times, God remembers his people. And even in his wrath, he remembers mercy. At that time, Jesus continues, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. All before and during the war between the Jews and the Romans, various Jewish leaders were rallying people to their side. They were promising that they knew best how to deal with the Romans. Some claimed to be God's Messiah, and they expected God to intervene on their behalf. But of course, God wasn't in any of that pious God talk or that religious nationalism. In fact, that was the very thing that eventually brought God, uh, Rome's wrath down on their heads. And so all that fits fairly well with what happened in 68 to 70 AD. But what do we do with verses 24 and 25? Jesus goes on there. 
But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. How could that have happened in 70 AD? Well, let's pay attention to the fact that Jesus is quoting Old Testament prophecy here. And these verses come from the book of Isaiah. They come from several other places in the prophets. Take, for example, Isaiah 13.10. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. It sounds like the end of the world, but the amazing thing is that this is actually a prophecy about the overthrow of Babylon in the time of Cyrus the Persian. And if you read other similar prophecies, you'll find that, that this is standard prophetic language for the destruction of a city or a nation. The uh, stars and the, the prophet's symbolic poetry falling from the sky and the heavenly bodies being shaken represent kings and rulers falling from power and the trauma and upheaval of a regime change. Think about what's been going on in Libya and Egypt in the past weeks. And the darkening of the sun and moon likely represent the actual physical phenomena which take place when a city is destroyed. I don't know if any of you experienced a big forest fire, but those who have have described the smoke hanging so thick in the air that it just about blots out the sun. You can't even see the sun in that picture. That's how much it... Oh, can you see it Up on the left there? That's a picture I found online about a forest happening during a forest fire. And at night, um, that smoke makes the, room, the moon look dim and often blood red. And the same was true when a city was conquered and its buildings were all going up in flame and the, the air was full of smoke. So the, the, the dark sun and the moon evidently became a symbol for a conquered city. So think of Jerusalem at 70 AD. After all that starvation and that slaughter, Rome finally took the city and they deposed the leadership. They, they burned the temple and the other buildings and, and the whole experience was an utter cataclysm. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 26, that that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. All right, get ready maybe to really have your minds blown now. This picture of Jesus coming on the clouds is not primarily a picture of Jesus coming to earth. He certainly does do that. We are looking forward to that. But this particular picture is first and foremost a picture of Jesus coming to God in heaven. If you have your Bible, open it to Daniel 7. That's the prophecy Jesus is quoting here in verse 26. Daniel 7. Let me read verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There it is. He approached the ancient of days, that is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. So where's Jesus coming to in this prophecy? He's coming to God. And why? Well, he's coming to be vindicated against his enemies. He's, he's coming to be given the supremacy. 
If you read the whole chapter there in Daniel, the Son of Man is being given victory over the terrible beasts which represent the world empires who are oppressing God's people. Interestingly, Jesus will quote this prophecy from Daniel 7 again to the high priest when he's on trial before them in Mark 14. And when Jesus does, what do they do? They tear their clothes and they accuse him of blasphemy. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man who is on God's side. And you, leading men of the city, are actually the wicked beasts. I may be on trial before you, but you are on trial before God. And one day you will see that God will vindicate me and give me victory over you. No wonder they tear their clothes. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what finally happens. And this would have been an encouragement to Jesus' disciples. Their, their leader may be tried and crucified in the days to come, and they may be persecuted after that by the beastly powers of this world. But Jesus says, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Watch out. Be on your guard. Pay attention, because ultimately, God will vindicate us and give us the victory in the end. And in the meantime, verse 27, he'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now this is also Old Testament prophetic language. It's the way the prophet spoke about God bringing his people back from exile. We saw it in um, Isaiah. Here's one uh, passage from Isaiah. We didn't look at this one, but in Isaiah 11, verses 10 and 12. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered peoples of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Remember, we've been learning in Mark that this is exactly what Mark has been saying Jesus' whole ministry is about. That, that he's bringing about a new exodus. He's, he's bringing God's exiled peoples back from their captivity along the way of holiness back into God's presence. That Jesus inaugurates this new exodus through his life. And then we see he teaches his followers to continue the task. And many interpreters think, think that's what Jesus means when he says that Jesus sends his angels to gather his people because the Greek word translated angel here is angelos. It literally means messengers. And angels are God's spiritual messengers. But angelos says, can also refer to human messengers. Like the apostles who are called to bring the good news to the whole earth so that God can gather all who are exiled from God back to himself. And that's what Jesus' followers were to be about as they waited for the sign of Jesus' coming in verse 10. And that's what they were to be about still after 70 AD. And that's what we're still to be about as we wait for his final coming. Okay, so in conclusion, all these verses can be explained in terms of what was fulfilled in 70 AD. But I don't know about you, the, the further I go into this chapter, the more I begin to sense an even bigger mountain ridge behind the first one. Anyone else with me? And so as we travel through history, uh, we sense this and other prophecies being fulfilled. 
but repeatedly. First for Jerusalem, then for Rome, then who knows, maybe for America. And ultimately, clearly, the New Testament says, for the whole world. Maybe the details don't fit exactly in every case, but the basic pattern clearly does. Jesus comes to a city or a nation in peace, offering to be their king. If that city or nation refuses, Jesus comes a second time, this time in war. But in between those two comings, we who follow Jesus are to be his faithful messengers and representatives. And so we have to be careful where our primary identity lies. Not first with our city, not with our nation, but with our king. We may be persecuted for this. We may suffer. But we're to hang in there and not give up because we know that one day our king will return and gather us to himself. And we'll be delivered and we'll share in the victory. Endings matter. And that's how the king assures us that the story ends. Let's pray. Jesus, these were tough words for disciples who still didn't get what you were about, who still couldn't understand that you weren't going to be a mighty military Messiah to rescue them from Rome and set up God's kingdom then and there. And tough words for people who loved their temple and were exulting in its magnificence. And you were turning their whole world upside down. But you were also giving them hope and good news that, that though you would go the way of the cross and you would call them and us to do the same, that in the end, your way would triumph, your cause would be victorious, God would vindicate you. Those who stand against you will be destroyed and wiped out of the way along with injustice and wickedness and suffering. And ultimately, you will reign over renewed heavens and earth. And those of us who are faithful with you through thick and thin will rejoice with you and enjoy being in your kingdom forever. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.